Well, welcome back. In our first question, what are the grounds for divorce according to the Bible? Can a person remarry if they are divorced and not and not be guilty of committing adultery if they do remarry? So, what are the grounds for amputating someone's leg? <laughs> to save their life. No, no this, this is not, I'm not being I'm not being facetious. The Bible says God hates divorce. We had to give a writ for divorcement. What are the grounds? Doctors hate amputating limbs. When is it righteous to amputate a limb? When is gangrenous? When it's gangrenous. When, and, gang, and this is a, this is a metaphor. Remember the blood metaphor? Okay, the life is in the blood. It circles. Okay, when when circulation stops, it breaks the law of love. And when circulation stops, then the the limb dies because the this circle of love is broken. And so when in human hearts the hearts harden, and, and you talk about this in scripture all the time, you are stiff-necked and hard-hearted people. You have hearts of stone. Okay, so in a marriage, if you're married to somebody who has a heart of stone and is betraying you and breaking love, and there is no, uh, and you try to revascularize it, you do everything you can to try to get love to flow again, but it doesn't. Then that then it is righteous to sever that relationship because that relationship is destructive to both parties if the person's heart is hardened beyond restoration. If it's not hardened beyond restoration, then you work to revascularize and bring love back into the relationship. It's better to do that if you can. So what are the, what are the behaviors that indicate that someone is, has a hard heart? Okay, when you give yourself in marriage to somebody, okay, do you give more than your genitals to them? then can you betray that relationship in other ways than just through physical sexual contact with another person? That's exactly right. Um, Adultery means betrayal. It is actually betraying the trust that the person has put in you as their spouse. It can be a physical betrayal, but I know of cases, uh, firsthand, uh, when I say firsthand, I've had contact with the people themselves. It's not through some third party in which the spouse actually tried to murder them and was uh, and was imprisoned after a trial for attempted murder but they didn't sleep with somebody else is that adultery <laughs> yes it is the bible says if you break the law on one point you break it in all points because all breaks of the law are breaks of love and it is a betrayal of your marriage. I will love, honor, cherish you, uh, forsaking all others. And, and the idea is self-sacrifice. And I will sacrifice for you. Uh, but when you attempt to murder them, you're willing to kill them for yourself. That is a complete betrayal of the marriage. It's adultery. And so the biblical grounds are hardened hearts in which love no longer flows and betrayal happens. I was having a conversation with my pastor about the investigative judgment. He believes that God is keeping a record of sin in heaven. Uh, I read 1 Corinthians 13.5, and it says, you know, love keeps no record of wrongs. His response was that God is, is love is not God. What? His response was the statement that God is love is not God. In other words, God is not love. Okay. How do you understand that? And he also said that love is a characteristic of God. So what, what, how I understand that is your pastor is quite deluded. <laughs> Seriously. He has been indoctrinated into a false pagan system of reality in which God is a hierarchical being who rises up and uses power over. And with that power, he can act in loving ways. Just like you and I, we can be loving That's a characteristic we can have. Would it be fair to say of any human being other than Jesus that they are love? The Bible does not actually say God is loving. 
that diminishes him to our level. We can be loving, can't we? But being loving is not the same thing as being love itself. God is love, the Bible says. So your pastor denies the reality and diminishes the quality and character of God to be more like a human being because he actually worships the, the human law model in which you have a hierarchical ruling over that inflicts punishment. And so I, I promise you, he um, accepts the lie that God's law works like human law. I have a, uh, I'm, I was having a conversation with my pastor. Oh, that's the one I just read. It just came up twice. When God said to Adam and Eve that they would surely die if they ate the fruit of the tree, was he speaking the first death or second death or both? My personal view is that he was speaking exclusively of the second death. If you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Okay? That was the ultimate. But because of his grace, that was the ultimate consequence. But because of his grace, his foreknowledge, because he already knew what was going to happen, because Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world... Because of all that, he also, I think, included in there his act of grace. And what is his act of grace? The artificial state of sleep we call death. That is not the wages of sin death. That is the artificial state that God allowed to occur for the purposes of Christ the Messiah coming and working out the plan of salvation and destroying sin and saving the species. So, it is also possible to understand that God in his wisdom wove in this other first death as a act of grace to the ultimate death for those who are not saved. Because it says in the, in the text, in, uh, some describe it as, surely you will die. There you eat, you will surely die. You will surely die. Uh, the uh, Hebrew there is, dying you will die. So I think it's, it can actually imply both that you will eat, you will disconnect yourself from my grace, and you will decay and die because of grace, because Christ the Messiah is coming. But if you don't reconcile, then you will eternally die. So I think you could probably see both in there. But it's really primarily talking about the second death as the consequence of sin. In high school Bible class, we had an assignment to make many Bible studies, seven or eight verses, to back up things like the state of the dead and the Seventh-day Sabbath. Can common reason come out with things like this that uh, can be used to uh, minister in a pinch if someone asks us to back it up biblically? Of course, probably more importantly, people must be looking through the correct lens. What subjects do you think this method could be helpful for? I, I don't find it helpful really at all the proof text method of, 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 of applying truth. Uh, here's a proof text, here's a proof text, here's a proof text. Proof text method is, is, is I, I find that to be part of the elementary teachings that we are to grow beyond. We need to have a biblical base for the understanding of the principles and how reality works, and we want to tie those biblical texts to experiences and, and uh, God's uh, revelations in nature and show the, the cause and effect and, and so forth. I think we've done a lot of this. If you want a place to find a resource with biblical references to support what we teach, go to our website, go to the um, Power of Love Training and Equipping course, download the PDF document that went with that course, and in the back of that document, I have 30, uh, 40, I can't remember how many pages of references referencing the, every, the principles from every one of those lectures. And so if you want, and those references are biblical and other historical Christian sources are referenced there to show that these ideas are, are understood uh, by more than just me. 
So uh, I would, that would, if that's what you're looking for, there, there you go. Did Jesus have fear? No. I think Jesus was tempted by fear. Because fear is part of the temptation. Uh, and, and, and I think you can see some of that temptation in Gethsemane when he, when he had anxieties or fears about going through the cross. But he was never controlled by fear. Being tempted is not sin. Okay? So did he have the emotion where he, uh, I think at that point he did. I think most of the stuff that we have fears over, he didn't have any fears over. He had no fears over that stuff. He didn't have fear out on the lake when the storm came. So the kind of stuff we fear, he didn't have fear where he's going to put his head at night, the food he was going to eat. The kind of stuff we worry about, he didn't have fear about that. But I think in Gethsemane, he was tempted with fear. After man was removed from the garden, Genesis 3.24, God, uh, Genesis 3.24 says God placed at the east of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every uh, way to keep on the way to the tree, uh, to bar the way uh, to the tree of life. Do you think the tree and the flaming sword are still on earth today? Do you think the Ark of the Covenant is somewhere on earth as well? So there's two ways to understand the tree and the flaming sword. The flaming sword is something that was being wielded by the angels that were there. Uh, I suspect that they would have taken whatever that was with them when they departed. Uh, another, uh, regarding the, the garden, there's two ways to understand this. One would be that it got destroyed at the flood when the whole world got destroyed. And then Ellen White's view is that prior to the flood, the earth, the garden and the angels stayed on the earth until the flood. And that at the flood, the, uh, the God took the garden off the earth and it is in heaven and will be restored at the second or at the end of the thousand years, when the earth is made new, the garden comes back down, and she says that Adam will actually see vines that he trained with his own hands uh, still in the garden that God preserved for him. So that's her view. You won't find that in Scripture. You believe it or don't believe it. It really doesn't matter to salvation, or you can believe it was destroyed in the flood. But I think there is no reason to believe that the garden, as it was described in the Bible, is on earth today. In reading about all the pain Paul had to endure as well as Jesus, do you think God took some of the pain away? I understand God is always with us, but don't understand how God being loved could allow this. I know I couldn't endure pain like that. Uh, Like when Stephen was stoned, I always imagined God giving him a vision to take his mind off the pain. Uh, Is that shallow thinking? No, I think that is actually true. God never allows you to be tempted more than you're able. With every temptation, he provides a way of escape. And he provides the strength to handle anything that comes if you're trusting in him. Uh, I don't think he he numbs us such that we uh, avoid all painful things in life, physical or otherwise. But he will not allow those things to be beyond what we can handle and will provide the strength at the time for those trials and temptations. And understand that as well. If you're anticipating a particular difficulty, struggle, or pain that hasn't yet occurred, and you're you're anxious over that, you won't get the strength to handle that until the event actually occurs. You don't get the strength before the event. Does that make sense? And many people are praying for the strength before they actually are in the trial. Yes? The last person you didn't get is about the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant, I think that's somewhere on earth hidden. My personal view is that it's actually hidden somewhere on earth. Uh, it may or may not be discovered before Christ comes. It's not magic, folks. It is a box made by human hands out of gold and acacia wood. 
And uh, but when it comes, you can you can bet you can bet that it will be used to create a mythology and superstitions of all kinds, magical thinking of touching. You can bet that Satan could potentially use that in ways to deceive millions, if not billions. Uh, uh, it, potentially, it could be used in that way. So, um, but it was just a box. It was not magic. And, uh, and it has no power now. The, the entire system has been decoupled from God's reality at, after, after the uh, Jews rejected Christ. Your house has left you desolate. My wife and I are making a major decision. I suggested asking for a sign, a so-called fleece, to help in our decision. However, there is our, there's a trusted family member that believes asking for a sign is not God's will. What do you say? I believe either way. Uh, it depends on the circumstances. God absolutely for people who have decisions that he has not provided sufficient evidence that is reasonably understood in the circumstances themselves. For instance, if you're a smoker and you're praying to God for a sign on whether you should quit smoking or not, you're not getting one. (laughs) The evidence is already there on that decision. Okay, So if the evidence is already there and it's clear... Uh, you're expected to act on that evidence, and you don't get magical signs or supernatural signs for that. However, there are many decisions that regard potential future. Should I go here? Should I move there? Should I should I um, uh, take this job or that job? And 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 if you and you do your due diligence, you investigate, you interview, you you look at the the various pros and the cons, and at the end of the day, you can see benefits both directions. You you just can't because you, you don't know the future. Asking God to give you some indication uh, that, that, that would be sufficient for you to know his will is a righteous request. And God will honor that request. I can't tell you what that sign might be. It might simply be open or close the door. If they don't, uh, I applied for the job. If they don't offer it to me, then I'll know you don't want me to go there. It might be something as simple as that. Just don't let them offer it to me if you don't want me to go there. I've had that happen in my life on several occasions where I was offered or, or interviewed for jobs and, and I prayed for it and, and asked the Lord, but I prayed that the Lord's will be done. I don't want to go where he doesn't want me to be. And those things closed. After very positive discussions, they, they, they closed and, and they didn't happen. And I said, thank you, Lord. I didn't get stressed over that because I knew he was probably saving me for something that I didn't even anticipate or see. That, that's one way. Another way you can ask for some types of signs. I've heard of people doing this, and they've had actual real miracles uh, that, that have occurred that was clearly supernatural uh, that uh, indicated what they should do. Others get a, just a deep conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit puts it on their heart, and they are convicted. Uh, sometimes that happens. The Holy Spirit will convict us of duties that we need to carry out. I can't tell you, but I think it's righteous for you to ask. Uh, last week, we heard a good explanation where... Um, where death and destruction, punishment comes from, sin itself. I find it helpful explaining or substituting the word punishment for natural results. In other words, using uh, natural results or consequences rather than the word punishment. I reap what I sow. My question is, is it possible some become confused with the destruction of man and the destruction of the planet? Could, this, uh, could these two stories somehow be mistaken as intertwined and is why people are confused about death and burning? I, I think there's truth in that. I think that's absolutely true. Um, that uh, the destruction of the planet, the elements melt in the fervent heat, Peter describes, uh, that they, they then apply that to people melting in the fervent heat. Um, and it, it actually doesn't say people. It says the elements melt in, in fervent heat. And so I think you're right. They may conflate the two and merge them together, and that causes confusion. That's a good point. 
And let's see if there's any other questions. Um, does God learn? We are created in the image of God, and a big part of life is learning, which uh, also brings challenges and joy. But if God is all-knowing, he must not have anything to learn. Wouldn't that um, be boring? My view, I've got a very, very strong view on this. God does not learn. Learn means what it means. I didn't know that. What God does do is he experiences. So, for instance, as a parent with a child, not that you have the gift of prophecy or foresight, but can most parents reasonably predict how their child may respond if you give them a piece of candy? Can you reasonably predict what they'll do? Okay? And if you do that, and they jump up and down with glee, and they give you a big hug. Is that boring? Well, you knew it was going to happen. You didn't learn anything there. It must be boring. No, it's not boring, because God is love, and it's about the experiences that he shares, and this is why he creates. He creates intelligent beings in a universe of freedom so he can experience our love, and he can experience and see the joy that we get as we receive his love. And as a parent... Do you ever see your children learn something you already know? Do you ever see it? You do? And do you see them get excited? And as your children learn something and gain mastery and they get all excited, do you experience something? Do you experience joy? See, God is not learning anything, but he's a God of love, and he wants to experience and share with us what, as the joys that we experience as we discover and learn things. Okay? So, no, I don't think God learns. The question was, Roe, uh, uh, the, the, the recent Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, was that a King of the North move? Uh, in my view, it, it was. It's part of the, it's part, King of the North is rising, folks. I'm just telling you, if you can't see it, you, you're sleeping. <laughs> the, the King of the South is still attacking Foolishly, in my view, because everything that they are doing is simply enraging the, the sleeping giant of the masses who are, who are being pushed by these actions, these irrational, foolish actions to join the king of the north. And the king of the north is rising all over this country. And it's going to be quite, uh, I think it's going to be quite brutal when it happens. And our job as Christians, we, we can stand with the godly principles of, say, liberty of conscience, liberty of freedom of speech, but we don't use the government to coerce and force people. We, the, gov- the only righteous use of the human governments are to restrain those who would take other people's liberties. That's it. It's, it's, it's a restraint. That's what God has endorsed. And that's what our Constitution has done better than any government in human history is set up restraining hedges around the big three that, that the liberal left is actively and aggressively trying to tear down in order to create a society in which the masses are controlled by a few elites. What's going to happen, it's going to backfire on them, and the, uh, the, the, there is going to be a beastly system that sets up with some elites controlling the masses, but it is not going to be a liberal left that does it. It's going to be a very crushing conservative right that does it. That's what I see happening. It's, and it's going to be a beastly system of revelation. And if you read my blog for this, go and read my blog for this week about reaping the whirlwind. 
You will see why this, this controlling system happens. It's because we are reaping what we are sowing into the characters of people. And when you sow these evil principles in the character of people, you get evil outcomes and division and violence and hostility and corruption in society. And people want to feel safe and they want to feel secure. And there's only two ways to get there. One is the godly way where you actually sow the seeds of righteousness into the hearts and people become loving and trustworthy and you have a safe neighborhood because people are generally loving and trustworthy. Or you sow the seeds of wickedness and people become more corrupt and more deceitful and you get a only way you can provide some sense of security now is by increasing external authority to control like you have in communist China. And that's where the beast of Revelation rises. It rises to make people feel more safe and secure and to do justice. But it will be abusive and totalitarian. And we thank God that God's kingdom does not work that way. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the God of love, the God of truth, and the God of freedom. We ask that you will write your law in our hearts and mind, seal us to your kingdom. And as these forces of, of the left and the right fight each other, may the beautiful people, the people who look like you in character, not be duped or tricked into joining either side, but stand separate and distinct, standing firm for your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen.